let me go ahead and settle an argument that I know probably happened this morning. And so I'm going to answer it for you before we get started. My guess is that a lot of homes today, the argument went something like this. I've really gotten involved in church now, and I'm really enjoying what we're doing. But today is opening day of football season. (laughs) And just to clear it up for Paul, the game starts at 105. You'll be home in plenty of time. John, too. Uh, It'll be there in plenty of time. And for those of you that are Cardinal fans, that game doesn't happen until tonight, so you're fine. But there's a question I think that happens a lot, which is, what do we do now? Okay? And that was a question, actually, that we had to answer for ourselves this Thursday here at Grace. You see, Dave was out of town, like he said, at a men's conference, and Charlie Lahardy was preaching, or was planning on preaching, and so when he texted us at two o'clock and said that he'd fallen from a ladder while he was at work and broken his hip, he had to ask the question, what do I do now? Like, which hospital do I go to? How do I have surgery? How do those things happen? And suddenly we in the office also had to ask the same question because while we were talking about what was going to happen this weekend for the services, we realized that someone was going to have to talk. (laughs) We had to ask ourselves the question, what do we do now? My guess is that lots of us have asked that question before. I mean, almost all of us, I think, probably asked that question 15 years ago today. I remember right where I was. It was I was in college at a, in a little town called Bolivar, Missouri, and I was doing what all good college students do, sleeping through my first class. <laughs> and I got a phone call from my mom that said, hey, are you okay? Because I guess she thought that they were going to attack Bolivar as well. <laughs> Followed by the second question, have you heard what happened? I said, no, I haven't. Uh, she said, well, get up, turn on the TV, and see what's going on. So I did. I got up. I turned on the TV. I walked around campus that day, talked to my classmates. They actually canceled all of the classes that day. And I remember as I walked through campus, as I talked to my friends, as I went to the gas station and literally while I was pumping gas, saw the price of gas go up by a dollar a gallon, I remember asking myself, what do we do now? You know, it's not always bad news that makes you have that question. Sometimes it's good news. You and your spouse find out you're going to have a baby. And you ask yourself, what do we do now? (laughs) Or maybe it's that you get called into the boss's office at work and they say, you've got a promotion, but you're going to have to move across country. And you ask yourself, what do we do now? One of the times in America that we most often hear of this question getting asked is when someone has the fortune or misfortune of winning the lottery. They're going about their regular life and then suddenly a huge pile of cash gets dumped on them. A few years ago in 2012, there was a lady by the name of Sandra Hayes in St. Louis who won Powerball. Her and 12 of her co-workers had picked the correct numbers, and they had won $224 million. Now, between the time that they split it 12 ways and paid taxes, they each got $9.09. (laughs) And so they had to ask themselves, what do we do now? And her story actually turned out to be kind of a tragedy. 
You see, Sandra Hayes wasn't sure what to do, but suddenly all of her friends and relatives started coming out of the woodwork, greedy for this thing that she has. She said, it was almost as if they had turned into vampires, wanting to suck everything away from me. She said, at this point, I'm basically broke and with no relationships. It's a tragedy. It doesn't always turn out that way. In the same article that I was reading about Sandra Hayes, I read about a guy by the name of Richard Lustig, who is a man from Florida who's actually won the large lottery nine times. And he still has most of the money. He's bought some nice houses, some nice cars. But he said, the reason that that happened, the reason that I still have it all, is because the very first thing that I did whenever I won the lottery the very first time is I went out and I got an accountant and a financial planner. He said, I figured that I needed to plan for the long haul because the tragedy for so many is that they spend their money and they live as if there's no tomorrow. But there's always a tomorrow. And tomorrow always comes. For many of us, in fact, for all of us, there will be a time when we will ask that question, what do we do now? And it's that space when we go from this world into the next. It's this space where we leave this world, where we are existing on earth. And for those of us who are followers in Jesus, the question that sometimes we ask is, what do we do in heaven? What are we going to do there? And a lot of us have these opinions. And you may be here today and you may say, Chris, I'm not even a follower of Jesus. I don't know that I believe in heaven. I don't really have a perception there. And any perception that I have, I just kind of think that when we get to heaven, we'll all become little chubby babies with curly hair and harps. (laughs) Or it's this place where we stand like a really long line while a guy with a beard flips through a book and those of us that didn't make it in go down an escalator. (laughs) That's my picture of heaven, right? And I want to let you know that if that's where you are, you're in a great space here this morning. Because I want to let you know that regardless of what your initial perception is of heaven, wherever you came from, that I think what we'll learn today as we look through the Bible and understand a little bit about what the Bible says about what we will do in heaven is that we'll understand today's big idea, okay? And that's this. When we, when we talk about heaven, when we're thinking about what we will do in heaven, I want you to know that the things that we do in heaven will be the same things that we should be doing here on earth. Let me say that again. The things that we will do in heaven are the same things that we should be doing here on earth, okay? And these things that we're going to be talking about, these activities, these questions about what are we going to do, I think that if we follow these things here on earth, not only will we prepare ourselves for heaven, But we will also see an entire wave of change that happens here in northwest Tucson, across Arizona, and across the world. If we will live into these actions, I think that we will see that happen. So today what we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking at a series of texts. Most of them come from the book of Revelation, which is the very last book in the Bible. Okay, And if you have a Bible with you, we're going to be starting in Revelation chapter 4. You can turn there with me if you'd like. If you don't have a Bible, the verses, as well as some of the other verses that I'll just kind of be referencing will also be on the screen behind me as we talk. You can check it out on your cell phone or on your tablet at gracetucson.org Bible. And one other thing, as a side note, if you don't own a Bible, 
and you would like to own a Bible, we would like to give you a Bible free of charge. You don't even have to sign up or anything like that. Just as you leave today, stop by the Welcome to Grace table, and we'd love to just give you one. Because we think that there's this amazing thing that when you spend your time looking at the words that God breathed into our lives, your life will change. Okay? And so we would love to give that to you. But we're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 4, which Revelation was a letter that John wrote to a bunch of his churches. Now, John was one of Jesus's closest friends. Okay? He was one of the 12 disciples. In fact, he was one of the three closest that hung out with him the most, it seems like. He was one of the guys that understood a lot of things about Jesus. And what had happened is that after Jesus had died and risen again and then ascended to heaven, John writes this letter to seven churches in Asia Minor. It's this letter that he's writing to them to give them hope and encouragement because these seven churches were churches that John had helped pastor. He'd started them off and they were little churches that at the time, just one generation after Jesus, were trying to figure out what in the world do we do? How do we do this like learn about Jesus and live life together thing? What are we doing? And they had this struggle. In addition to that, they were being faced with one of the greatest opponents that this world has ever seen in the Roman Empire. So we had these small groups of Christians, followers of Jesus, maybe a few hundred, and the Roman Empire who was persecuting and killing them if they announced their faith. As a quick side note, if you happen to have been a betting person at the time, and you were given the options to put all of your money either on a few hundred Jesus followers who were a ragtag group of broke people, or on the Roman Empire, you would put all your money on the Roman Empire. But 2,000 years later, there's one of those that we're still talking about. And it's not the Roman Empire, right? It's true. So as a side note, when we start to worry about how things are going in our world and we feel oppressed and we feel discouraged, remember that the church, that the word of God lasts longer than any of these institutions of humans. And we can live into that and we can be encouraged in that. You see, the church was discouraged. They felt threatened. In fact, John, the reason that he even was writing this letter to them instead of just talking to them was that he had been given a a punishment that was actually maybe even worse than being killed. And that was that he'd been banished to the island of Patmos because he had been preaching the gospel. And in that time, in an honor and shame culture, the most dishonorable thing that you could have been was banished from your culture taken away from your family and your friends, away from your church and away from a place of influence to isolation. And it was in that space that God started to speak to him, give him visions. And he started to write letters to his churches to say, you know what? I know you feel discouraged, but I've read the end of the book and I know how it finishes. I've got some encouragement for you today. My guess is there are some of us here who are a little bit in that discouraged place. We look around our lives and we're like, man, I could use some encouragement. Let me tell you, that's what this is for. That when we look to the future, when we look to heaven and we see the things that we will be doing there and we start to live into it and say, these are the things that I should be doing here on this earth. When we do that, there's some encouragement there. And it's in that space that John starts to write what we're going to be reading today. So before we do that, before we start diving into Revelation chapter 4, we're going to pray for just a second and ask that God would help us to understand a text that for a lot of people is super confusing. 
God, we just ask this morning that this text would become alive, that we would understand that our hope is not in governments. Our hope is not in people around us, but Jesus, our hope is in you. Jesus, may we live into that this week. May we find ways this week to live here on earth in a way that will echo for eternity. God, may our lives be that example that we look like we will look in heaven. God, thank you for sending Jesus as the ultimate example of that. Thank you for the way that he lived and died. And God, I ask that as we read these words that we wouldn't get confused by the symbols, but rather that we would hear the heart of Jesus and that that would match our heartbeat this morning. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Revelation chapter four, it starts off this way. It says, after the vision of these things, which is what he was talking about with the earlier letters that he had written to his churches, he says, I looked and there before me was an open door in heaven. And the same voice that spoke to me before that sounded like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must happen after this. Immediately I was in the spirit and before me was a throne in heaven and someone was sitting on it. The one who sat on the throne looked like precious stones, like Jesper and Carnelian. All around the throne was a rainbow, the color of an emerald. Now we're going to stop there for just a second because I know that you probably have a couple of questions. The first question is, are you sure that Charlie didn't just jump off the ladder so he wouldn't have to explain Revelation? (laughs) I'm pretty sure about that. And the second question is, what in the heck does all this mean? (laughs) And that's a very valid question as well. You see, here's the deal. John, when he was writing this, understood that there were things that he was seeing that were beyond words. He couldn't explain them. So he used figurative language a lot of times. And sometimes this figurative language is really confusing. And honestly, we could spend months talking about the symbols of each one of these. And what does it mean? You might say, what does it mean to be caught up in the spirit? Or, or what does it mean that he looked and he saw someone on a throne that was made of stone? Or how in the world is there a rainbow that's the color of an emerald, right? Like rainbows, Roy G. Biv, not just G, right? <laughs> what, how, how does this play out? I don't understand. And those, those are great questions, honestly. And this morning, instead of dealing with all of them, I'm going to deal with one of them because I think that it will help us understand and unpack the rest of the text, okay? And that one question is this thing about the rainbow that goes around the throne. And here's the thing. If I went around Tucson and I started surveying people and I said, what does the symbol of a rainbow mean? I'd get lots of different answers. People have different opinions about what a rainbow is or looks like or means. But in John's day, they wouldn't have had that kind of confusion, there wouldn't have been this big debate. You see, the people in John's day would have seen a rainbow in a very specific symbol. And that is that they would have hearkened back to the beginning of the Bible in the book of Genesis, at the very beginning of the Bible, where there's this story about Noah and the ark, where God flooded the world because humanity had become evil, but spared Noah and his family and the animals. And after it had rained, a rainbow shone. And that was God's promise to the people that he would never again destroy the world by water. And so what the people came to understand that as is that the rainbow is a symbol of mercy. When John was writing this text to them, in the letters that he wrote, the first three chapters, it says, sometimes you do some really good things and sometimes you do some pretty awful things. And when he gets to this point, what he's saying is, but there's mercy. When you get to heaven, when the God of the universe, who is the stone, who never sways, When you approach there, know that the throne that the God of the universe sits on is surrounded by mercy, which is the only way that a scallywag like me can approach it. 
and it's the only way you can either. That there's this mercy that surrounds there so that when we mess up, we can be encouraged that the God of the universe wants us to approach the throne. We can understand that and we can approach there together. And I think that it's in that minute when the people of those congregations started to see and to understand and to kind of wrap their heads around this that John was saying to them, look, I know that I've had some harsh words for you just in the last few minutes, but there's a place coming where you can be encouraged. There's a place looking forward that is not so crazy. And then he starts to talk about, now that we understand that mercy, we understand what the appropriate response is to that mercy. As we look to verse 4, it says, Around the throne there were 24 other thrones with 24 elders sitting on them. They were dressed in white and had golden crowns on their heads. Lightning flashes and noises and thundering came from the throne. Before the throne, seven lamps were burning, which are the seven spirits of God. Also, before the throne, there was something that looked like a sea of glass, clear like crystal. In the center and around the throne were four living creatures with eyes all over them in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second like a calf, the third had a face like a man, the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of these four living creatures had six wings and was covered all over with eyes inside and out. See, the first thing that he starts to recognize is that there's all kinds of things here that are beyond his words. There are these things that he can't describe what they look like. But here's a truth that I want you to catch. It is way less important what you look like than it is what you look at. Hear that with me. It is way less important what you look like than what you look at. These creatures, as magnificent as they are, as many prizes as they would have won at Comic-Con, as ridiculously amazing and beyond words that he could wrap his head around, He was saying, look, these creatures with wings and eyes, more amazing than I can tell you. That's not the important thing. We can get so caught up in the symbolism of that, that we miss what they were doing. And that thing that they were doing is the thing that will be the first thing that we will do in heaven. And that's this, we will worship. What do we do in heaven? We will worship. Let's look at what these uh, creatures we're doing. It says day and night, meaning all the time. They never stopped saying holy, 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 which means separate or above, means beyond even our wildest imagination, is the Lord God Almighty. He was, he is, and he is coming. These living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to the one who sits on the throne, that's Jesus, who lives forever and ever. Then the 24 elders bow down before the one who sits on the throne, and they worship him who lives forever and ever. They put their crowns down before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power because you made all things, everything existed and was made because you wanted it. You see, as important as it is what these creatures looked like, when they look at Jesus, it all pales in comparison. These great creatures started just laying down, face down to the God of the universe and said, that which you have created is so much bigger then what I can understand, the only appropriate response I have is worship. Now, a lot of times when people use the word worship, we think of that in the same word as the word music. 
And I will tell you, I am so thankful for people like Paul and Cindy and Brian and the other people who lead worship here on a week-in and week-out basis, for the people who help back in the tech booth to make sure that we can understand worship. But worship isn't just music, and I'm so thankful for that too. I once had an ex-girlfriend that told me if singing was my spiritual gift, that I was probably satanic. (laughs) We broke up. (laughs) There is a reality that worship is beyond that. And one of the best examples I can think of that happened just a few months ago. Morgan and I and one of our good friends, John Heddles, went to a concert with this guy named Gunger. Now, some of you may be familiar with Gunger if you're into Christian music. He wrote this song called Beautiful Things, and it talks about how God makes beautiful things out of dust. And those beautiful things include us. And as amazing as that concert was, and as awesome as the worship was there with the music piece, the piece where I really understood worship wasn't that. You see, after the first five songs, this middle-aged white guy came out on the stage and said, I'm going to talk with you all about something. His name was Mike McCarr, and he said, here's the deal. I grew up as the son of a Baptist worship pastor. And then when I was a young adult, I became an atheist, hardened atheist. And later, I've been trying to work out what it means to be a Jesus follower now, trying to figure this whole thing out. And he talked about how, for example, here in Arizona, there's lots of things that we can look at out there that are awesome and big and magnificent, and we think there's something to worship. When we look outside and we don't have the light pollution and we can see for bazillions of miles, and we know that there are galaxies that the Hubble telescope can't see that God created just for fun, just because God enjoys them. We think, wow, that's cool. Or we stand in front of the Grand Canyon and we realize the magnitude of it that we can never comprehend with our brains. But he said, you know, that's actually not the thing for me. He said, actually, the thing that I want to talk to you about today is math. And we thought, what? <laughs> We came to a concert, not to a math lecture. No one confuses those two things, really. (laughs) He said, but the thing is, between string theory and numbers, there's something that makes me understand God. And when he said this, it made me come to a space of worshiping Jesus. And here's what he said. He said, it's not really the big things that amaze me, it's the small things. It's, in fact, some of the very smallest things. In your body, for example, one of the smallest things that we can wrap our head around is a thing called an atom. And we know that there are things that are smaller than that. Inside an atom, there's a nucleus. Protons, neutrons, electrons, there's quartzes. There's other things that are smaller than that. But most of us have heard of an atom. We can fathom an atom. And he said, here's the deal. In the human body, as an adult, you have seven octillion atoms. Now, I don't know about y'all's bank accounts, but mine has never said octillion at the end of it. So I said, I don't even know what that number means. And he said... It's a seven with 27 zeros at the end. Again, that number still doesn't make any sense to me. I can't, that, whatever. A bajillion, bajillion, bajillion means the same thing. But he said, he said, here's the deal. He said, it's sort of like this. Let's pretend that I had a bag of frozen peas, okay? And I decided that I was going to pour this bag of frozen peas into a bowl like this. Except, instead of the bowl being this size, it was the size of Earth. And I poured them in. All of them. If I poured all of the peas into a bowl the size of the Earth, that would be one octillion frozen peas. In your body, there are seven octillion atoms. 
that all have to work together to make you, you. There are seven octillion atoms that have to exist concurrently to make you the person that you are. And the truth is that God loves every one of those and knows every one of those and knows each and every one of you and died for each and every one of you. When he said that, it reminded me, in my office, there are two quotations that hang on my wall that I look at literally every day. And one is from a pastor by the name of Francis Chan. And it sits on my office wall and it says this, the God of the universe, the creator of nitrogen and pine needles, of galaxies and E minor, loves us with a radical, unconditional, self-sacrificing love. And what's our typical response? We go to church, sing songs, and try not to cuss. <laughs> Laugh and then say, ouch. That was my response. Wow. You know, when we think about how vast God is, how big God is, and how God also understands the minute details of our lives, there's only one appropriate response. And when we look at these creatures in Revelation chapter 4, we understand this. But it's not just creatures that are doing this. If you flip over just probably the next page or two in your Bible in Revelation 7, it talks about people doing this too. In Revelation chapter 7 verse 9, it says it this way. It says, after the vision of these things, I looked and there was a great number of people, so many that no one could count them. They were from every nation and tribe and people and language of the earth. They were all standing before the throne and before the Lamb, wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands, which were examples of worship, by the way. They were shouting in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures. They all bowed down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Praise, glory, wisdom, thanks, honor, power, and strength belong to our God forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. You see, there's this picture that John paints, and it's bigger than what we can wrap our heads around of what worship looks like. John says that when we get to heaven, what worship is going to look like is not just one brand of singing. It's not all going to be in English, by the way. I promise you that. Thank you. It will be in Spanish. And it will be in Hebrew. And it will be in Kenyaarden. And it will be in languages that have been dead for thousands of years. And we will worship Jesus together. And it won't just be people who have the same skin color as you do, or that I do. And it won't just be people from the United States. And it won't just be people who have understood what a microwave is. It will be all people of all tribes, of all nations, of all tongues, the rich and the poor, society's outcasts and those on top of the mountain who fall down the mountain and are disgraced. It will be all of us singing worship to the God of the universe and to the lamb who sits on the throne named Jesus. That is what we will spend eternity doing. But worship isn't just singing either. As amazing as that is, and as much as I hope that one day I have an awesome voice and that I can finally play the guitar, <laughs> worship is more than that. It's a position. You see, one of the first times the word worship is used in the Bible, it's used all the way back in the book of Genesis. There's this story that I actually don't like in the Bible. I wish it wasn't there, if I can be honest with you. I wish I could just cut it out and be like, that's not... That I, I wrestle with that. It's a story about this guy named Abraham and his son Isaac. 
And there's this conversation that God and Abraham have. And God says to Abraham, Abraham, I know Isaac's your only son, and I know I promised him to you, and I know it's been a really long time for you to get to him. But I want you to go sacrifice him. And I can imagine Abraham saying, but God, he's all I've got here. He's the most important thing in my world. And God says to Abraham, I'm not interested in what's the most important thing in your world. I'm interested in what's the most important thing at all. Sometimes you have to sacrifice the number two most important thing of all time for the most important thing. And God said to Abraham, I want you to go sacrifice your son, Isaac. And there's this text in Genesis chapter 22 where Abraham uses this word for worship. And in in Genesis chapter 22, Abraham turns to his servant and he says, he said to his servants, stay here with the donkey. My son and I will go over there and worship. And then we will come back to you. The story of worship there, the word worship comes from the Hebrew word shakah. And what the word shakah means is it's not about music. It's not about playing on the right key. It's not about what you look like. It's about what you look at. And it's your posture when you look at that. It means to humble yourself, to put yourself on the ground. If you notice the position of all of these people, of all of the elders, of all those who had all of the worldly stuff, they were bowing down and saying, all that I've got is just rubbish. These crowns, let me put them at your feet. Because the best that I've got is there. But you're the best at all. You're the best, period. John understood this. John was telling the people that the very first thing that we will do in heaven is that we will worship. So what do we do now? Let me tell you, the very first thing that the Bible is clear about is that we should understand that as our position. I understand that some of us have different opinions about music. David Hillis loves Gregorian chant. Some people love him. Some people love really modern music. God loves worshiped. And when we understand that and we put ourselves in the position to love Jesus, when we take on that posture, that means way more than the song choices that we use or what we look like when we're doing it. But that's not the only thing that we'll be doing in heaven. The Bible is clear that it's not just about worship the whole time, that we will also do other things. And this is the second thing that I'm going to talk about. The second thing is this, that we will spend time in feast and fellowship. Here at Grace, we talk about the fact that there are four major commitments that we think that everyone, if they live into these things, will look more like Jesus, because that's our goal. We want you to look like Jesus. And one of them is to know. It means to come on weekends and to worship with us. Weekend worship is the no piece, but that's not where it ends. The second piece we call grow. And we have two parts to this. We say you grow through personal time with God, through reading your Bible, through praying. But you also do it through intentional relationships, through spending time in things like life groups. And then the, thir- the last thing we call go, and it means to serve others, which we'll talk about here in just a second. But the reason that we say those things are so important is because that's what Jesus said was really important. You see, in the book of Matthew, which is one of the books about Jesus' life, Jesus was asked, what's the most important thing? Which I'm not going to lie, more important than literally any other question that I could ever ask Jesus. That would be the question I'd want. What's the most important thing? And the good news is that Jesus told us, (laughs) so we didn't have to guess. 
Matthew 22, in verse 37 through 40, Jesus was asked this, what's the most important commandment? And Jesus answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. This is the first and most important command. And the second is like the first, love your neighbor as you love yourself. All the law and the writings of the prophet depend on these two commands. Jesus said, love God, worship. It's what we're going to be doing in heaven. We should be doing it here on earth. And love others. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Now, some of us would look at that and be like, okay, well, that's interesting, but who's my neighbor? I live really far away from people or I've never met my next door neighbor. But Jesus said, I'll even answer that question for you. In Luke chapter 10, which is another one of the writings about Jesus, he's asked this question, who's my neighbor? And he tells this story that we know as the Good Samaritan. And it's a story about this religious outcast who took care of a person who was beaten up and laying by the side of the road. And it says, that, that's your neighbor. So to put that in our terms, your neighbor is the people around you. Yes, it includes your next door neighbor, even if you don't like them. It includes the people who you work with the people who sit in the cubicle next to you or who work at the restaurant with you or who you teach with. It also, by the way, includes the gentlemen and ladies who stand at the corner of LaToya and McGee and beg. They are our neighbor. What will heaven look like? It will look like all of us getting together. That's why it looks like every nation, tribe, and tongue right? Is that it includes those who are rich and those who are poor, those who are outcasts and those who have beautiful bodies and those who society says doesn't. It will include those who have great abilities and those who have abilities that we don't understand. It will include those who have special needs. The body looks like that on purpose. We engage in a feast and in a fellowship. In the book of Revelation, John continues this picture in chapter 19. John says, Then I heard what sounded like a great many people. Remember, he saw people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. Like the noise of flooding water, like the noise of loud thunder, the people were saying, Hallelujah. Which, by the way, I grew up in Missouri, and hallelujah is, if it was translated to hillbilly, it means y'all come worship now, you hear? Okay? Because it meant everybody worshiped together. So they heard, hallelujah, our God, the Lord, the Almighty rules. Let us rejoice and be happy and give God glory because the wedding of the lamb has come and the lamb's bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given for her to wear. The fine linen means the good things done by God's holy people. And the angel said to me, write this. Happy are those who have been invited to the wedding meal of the lamb. And the angel said, these are the true words of God. Oftentimes in the Bible, the metaphor of a marriage is used a lot. Jesus tells stories about weddings and how they are examples of how Christ is going to come and how Christ came for the church. Paul, who wrote the majority of the New Testament, talks about marriage as a bride and a groom and how that parallels the church and Christ. And here in the book of Revelation, John says that heaven's going to look like a wedding feast. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to an awkward wedding before, one of those weddings that's sort of Romeo and Juliet, star-crossed lovers kind of thing. We're on this side of the aisle, and on this side of the aisle were two groups of people who really didn't like each other, and it was awkward. Fortunately, when my wife and I got married, there was no chance of that. There were only 12 people at our wedding, so we all got along pretty well. But 
even though Morgan and I were the main attraction, I mean, Morgan was the main attraction at the wedding. The rest of us were there together on purpose. You see, my family got to meet Morgan's dad who flew in from Los Angeles for the first time. My family got to see my sister and my grandparents. They got to spend time together. They went out to eat together. They enjoyed life together. Let me tell you that in heaven, we will spend life together. Some of you are introverts. I get that. I'm not one if you can't tell. Uh, (laughs) But some of you are like, that sounds awful. But let me tell you the reason that that sounds awful probably is because you're used to a world where when you spend time with people, it's draining. The Bible tells us that heaven is a space of rest, but heaven is not a space of draining. We're going to spend forever around each other. One of the ways that we do that here at Grace that I'm so thankful for is through something that we call life groups. It's these groups of people that get together. And honestly, I am so thankful for my life group. We get together on Wednesday evenings at 7.30 and we talk about the Bible and we read through the Bible together. We talk about things that are tough like finances and what it means to adult. We talk about these things and we wrestle through these things. And when I think about how I live life, I think about the fact that last weekend on Friday at my fantasy football draft over at Rick Drost's house, it was Rick Drost and most of my small group. (laughs) I think about what did I do on New Year's Eve, the time when you can hang out with anybody that you want to. And I think about the fact that I went out and hung out with my small group, with my life group, that I lived life together with them because that's how I, those are the people that I want to live life with. There are some of you here today, and you might think, Chris, I, I don't even understand how to do that. What do I do now? Let me give you some good news on that. This week, on Wednesday and Friday, we start a new session of Alpha. There is no better way that we have found here at Grace for you to make friendships, for you to learn about Jesus, for you to ask the hard questions than to go through Alpha. The first session, the first real session starts this Wednesday night. And on Friday night, there's a group for families. So if you have kids, you can bring your kids. They'll be taught and instructed in ways to learn about Jesus. And you can learn about Jesus and live life together here. It's one of the things that we will be doing in heaven. It is something that we should be doing here on the earth. And the truth is that when we engage in those things, we learn a lot more about Jesus and about ourselves, But it's not just about worship, and it's not just about fellowship and fe- feasting and all those things. There's one other thing that I want to tell us about, and that's this. We will work. Now, I know some of you think, uh-uh, tomorrow morning's Monday, I'm going to hit the snooze alarm eight times. Boom, boom, right? I'm not talking about that kind of work. I'm not talking about the laborious kind, the type that you dread going into, the type that you hate. You see, The Bible tells us that if God is the center of our world, that the things that we do become worship here on this earth. So let me get really practical here with you. Maybe you're a teacher. And this week, you're dreading looking at your students in the face, helping them parse sentences. Let me tell you that that can be worship when you realize that helping a student understand how to read later helps them understand how to read the Bible and get the word of God into them. This week, maybe you're a stay-at-home parent and you think, Chris, there's no way that that's the type of work that is worship. But here's the reality. As you fold that baby's diaper and you put that baby down to sleep, understand that what you're teaching that baby is that when it is in its most vulnerable state, that the biggest thing that they can fathom cares for them and loves them. So one of these days, they will realize that when they are in their most vulnerable state, that the God of the universe loves and cares for them. 
It is worship when we work this way. The book of 1 Peter talks about this. It says that when we open our homes to people, that that is an act of worship. In the book of Genesis, at the very beginning of the Bible, Adam and the creation narrative was given work to do. He was told, go and name all the animals. And at the very end of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 22, so if you think about it this way, at the very beginning, there's a story about a garden and trees and work. And at the end of the Bible, there's a story about a garden and a tree and work. And right now, we exist in between two trees. Yeah. Over here, in the book of Revelation chapter 22, it gives an example. It says that there, in Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 through 3, here's what it says. It says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. It was shining like crystal and was flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Down the middle of the street of the city, the tree of life was on each side of the river. It produced fruit 12 times a year, once each month. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Nothing that God judges guilty will be in that city. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be there. And God's servants will worship him. You may look at that and you say, Chris, there's nothing in there about work. I don't, what are you talking about? And there's a couple of realities there. First of all, notice that even the earth is producing things, right? The trees are producing fruit. But that last word in verse 3 that we translate worship comes from the Greek word, which the New Testament was written in Greek. It comes from the Greek word letreu. And that word letreu has two meanings. It can mean to worship, but it can also mean to work. It's a word that is often used to talk about how slaves work for their master or how a business person provides goods and services for those around them. You see, what John was saying is that at the end of the day, at the final tree, we spend our time loving on God and loving each other by serving each other and by serving God. There are three things that the Bible is really clear that we're going to be doing in heaven. We're going to worship, we're going to fellowship, and we're going to work. And those are the things that we should be doing here on earth. Let me finish by telling you one last story. It was a story that John Piper, who's a pastor, characterized as a tragedy. And this comes from, I read it in a book called Don't Waste Your Life. He read this article in Reader's Digest. And the name of the article was Start Early, Retire Early. Doesn't sound like a tragic article. He said he was reading it, and the article was about this couple, Bob and Penny. Bob, at the age of 59, Penny at the age of 51, decided to retire. They decided they were going to move to Punta Gorda, Florida. And the article finished by saying this. It quoted Penny saying that they were moving to Punta Gorda, Florida, where they could cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. Now, John Piper's not against retirement, and neither am I, Okay. But the reason he said that was a tragedy is this. At some point in time, we are going to have to give an account for our lives. And when the God of the universe, who says, I loved you so much that I stepped out of heaven onto earth and died on a cross to redeem you to myself. And Penny looks at him and says, but look at all my shells. What a tragedy. Today, we know what the Bible says that we will do in heaven. The question for us is what will we do on earth in preparation? You see, tomorrow's going to come for all of us. Tomorrow's going to come, and the only differentiation is whether you plan on this side or not. Will you pray with me? God, this morning, 
as we looked at your word about what heaven looks like, about what we will do in heaven, God, my prayer is that those things that we will do in heaven match up with the things that we will do here on earth. God, there are some of us here this morning who we're, we're thinking about this and we're like, God, I don't even know if I believe in heaven. I don't even know if this even makes sense. But that first step, the first thing that we're going to do in heaven, that worship piece, you can start there today. Remember, it's not about singing. It's not about the words that you say, but it's about the humility of your heart. It's about the position of you in relationship to God. And you might look at this and you say, you know, I don't even understand all of this. But what I do understand and what I do know is that I believe that the God of the universe loves me and that he sent Jesus to die for my sins. And this morning, if you're here and that's you, or if you're listening online and that's you, I want to let you know that you can start that position of worship now. That you don't have to wait till you die in some other time and whatever. But Jesus says the kingdom of God is here. That forever starts today. And you can start that right now by just simply saying to God, and there's no magic words, it's not something like that. But just saying something like, God, as I look at my life, I know that there have been times that I've run the wrong direction. There have been times that I went the wrong way. I tried to follow what I wanted instead of what you wanted. And God, I'm so sorry for that. God, I ask that you would forgive me of those times. God, the Bible says that if I will ask for forgiveness, that you will do it, that you are just to forgive me of those things. God, that we remember that at the mercy seat is where you sit. That you are merciful to us. God, I pray that as we leave today, that you would help us to live into that love. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.